Hi, we're Katie, Jessica, and Shannon, and this is Boy Problems Podcast, a community focused on supporting families navigating substance use disorder. We hope sharing our stories, introducing you to experts, and answering all the questions you have no one else to ask will help you better navigate your story. Through our partners' recoveries, we found each other and formed our own squad, one we know is so valuable to how we manage this disease in our relationships. So we started bringing a microphone to our hangouts to extend our conversations to others just like us. When you're here, you're not alone. If you're listening, you probably know we met at a family support group and our bonds have grown stronger through sharing our stories and supporting each other. When we think about the thing that's helped us most, it's that. So we'd like to extend that community to you. If you're feeling like no one understands what you're dealing with or you're looking for a community of like-minded individuals, consider joining us for our virtual support group. For details, visit recovering2.com. We know what you're going through, and we're here to help. We're recovering, too. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Boy Problems Podcast. We are very, very excited to have our next guest. Her name is Gina Schaefer. Uh, She is the founder and CEO of uh, 13 hardware stores in Washington, D.C., Maryland, Virginia. Um, and then now you can add author to your title. You've been on a bunch of, uh, boards before you currently sit on different boards and also you've won so many accolades. So we'll definitely link to your, uh, website, uh, in our bio so people can just see how amazing you are. So thank you for joining us, Gina. Thank you for having me. Someone actually, I read recently that someone, someone wrote that you had to write more than one book to be called an author. So technically, I guess I'm not an author yet. Oh, well, that's lame. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> well, in my in my book, I think you're an author. So thank you for what that's worth. It's worth a lot. Thank you, Shannon. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. Well, so Gina, so um, you wrote a book called Recovery Hardware, and it just came out. And so the reason that um, I know you, which is something uh, which I found so interesting, is your company. You have over t- 250 employees. Uh, is you are really big in your company culture and just. Uh, valuing your employees, and uh, you did a DNI webinar for us, and you were just talking about different things that you celebrate. So, like in your stores, you celebrate like um, you were saying, like Hispanic Heritage Month and Pride, and all the different holidays. And then you said you celebrate sober birthdays, and I so my ears perked up as I'm like on a work thing, and I'm like, oh my god! So I, you know, I'm texting the girls, and then you had said that you were coming out with a book. I think I saw it on your LinkedIn. I was like, oh my gosh! Like I have to get, get you on our podcast so that we can spread the word about this book. So I'm so excited. If anybody's in your area of stores, go see them, please. And, um, yeah, let's kick this off. So tell us, uh, a little bit about you, if you don't mind. No, I don't mind at all. Um, except my age. I grew up in, (laughs) I grew up in Ohio and then fast forward, moved to Washington DC after graduation. I always wanted to own my own business. I never knew what I wanted to do. And I started working for these tech startups. I say these tech startups. I kept getting laid off. And so I would, you know, pick one that got venture capital money and then it would go out of business. And I swear it would go out of business like the second I got hired and it was never my fault. (laughs) So I had moved to this neighborhood. I guess I was about 28. I moved to this neighborhood called Logan Circle. 
And Logan Circle had been destroyed by the riots when Martin Luther King was assassinated. And a lot of the community, a lot of the people who were living in the neighborhood had moved there because it was an inexpensive place to live, but then really formed this strong community association to try and bring back residents and bring back businesses. And about the third or fourth time I got laid off, I thought, you know what, I need to start my own thing. It's time. And the neighborhood really wanted a hardware store. And so honestly, it was just... I'm going from software to hardware, darn it, why can't I do this? It never occurred to me that, you know, chicks don't open hardware stores or people want to be able to park. I, you know, my first location didn't have any parking. Like I did not think about all of the negatives. I just got very excited about helping my community. And here I am 20 years later, still running hardware stores. Yeah, that's amazing. Oh, and you just, you're turning it into an ESOP, which yes, is amazing. Yeah. Employee that's owned. Cool, very cool part. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So how does the recovery piece tie in when did that when did that enter the picture you know it started from the very beginning shannon but i never we didn't internalize it it was never something formal so there's two great stories from the very beginning that now that i've written the book i've really sort of gelled around one of my very first employees was a, a gentleman named tommy and tommy had been in prison for 17 years and i did not know that because when we decided we were gonna well when we had to start interviewing people you know um, employment applications, and maybe it's still legal in some states, but employment applications allow you to ask if someone is a felon. And we removed that box from our application because we we didn't care. I, whatever, I mean, we hadn't actively thought about who or how we were going to hire, but we just decided we did not want the felony box on our application. So before ban the box became a thing, we took it off. And so we hired Tommy. So what ends up happening is that I have this amazing returning citizen for 11 years who worked on my team, who taught me a lot, who made an impact on the business, um, who frankly was very undereducated and hadn't had a lot of work experience, but it, it was really impactful on me as a young business owner. The second, second or third teammate um, was a guy named Shane, who is in chapter, I don't know, Tommy's in like chapter two in the book and Shane's in ch maybe chapter four, but Shane came from a recovery clinic down the street and he showed up one day. There were very few businesses in this community. So if you think back to the fact that it had been destroyed and businesses had left and now everyone's coming back. And if you lived in the neighborhood, you wanted to work in the neighborhood, but there weren't a lot of jobs. And so folks going to the Whitman Walker Addiction Services Clinic were looking for their first jobs in recovery. And Shane came and asked me for a job. And so everything that unfolds sort of unfolds from him. And we are friends to this day. He owns his own restaurant. It's a fabulous success story. And we have so much fun laughing about, I mean, we were just clueless in those days. I mean, he was early in recovery and just like all over the place. I was early in business ownership, had no idea what I was doing. And so, um, we had a, a little bit of a tumultuous start that now 20 years later is just this beautiful relationship. And so did you know anything about recovery? Like, did you, have you ever had family members go through that friends as you were kind of navigating this? No, I didn't know anything. It's interesting. There's so many touch points that I now understand, like things that taught me something along the way. Um, Shane taught me early on that not to judge anyone by the best or worst thing they ever did. So he left one day, he worked with us for about 11 months and he got really mad one day and he stormed out. Uh, I, was, I was at the cash register ringing up a customer and it was a two story store and you hear like a herd of elephants coming running down the steps and it is Shane screaming, I never wanna see you again, you're terrible people to work with. These are one of the things that we laugh about now. Um, and he left. 
but he went back to the rooms and he started telling people they needed to go see that lady in the hardware store. And so before I knew it, I had all of these people applying. And most of the applicants at the time coming from Whitman Walker were men. So most of the guys knew him somehow. And he had said, go see Gina, even though he and I probably had, I think we think there, we think there was a three-year gap between then and us talking again. So I didn't know anything about it at the beginning, but I very slowly started to learn you know, a little bit by osmosis and then just a little bit by our influx of teammates, like what they were struggling with, how hard it was, um, you know, frankly, what I could learn because I didn't know anything. And so I was a sponge. I was learning from everybody who walked through the door and oh, lo and behold, so many of the people walking through the door to, through the door to work with us were in recovery. And so um, I, I feel like I'm babbling, but I knew nothing and started to learn from the folks who were actually living it, which I think was very meaningful also. And when did you learn that your store or stores at this point had been called like recovery hardware? Cause that must've been a very good feeling. Yeah. You know, it was 12 years, Katie, before anybody said that. So Mark Watson is one of my teammates who has worked with me for at least 19 years. He also came from the, the clinic from WAS. And he, after 12 years in business came up to me one day and he said, you know, you're called, this place is called recovery hardware. Um, and I cried. I mean, one of the chapters is called There Are No Tears in Hardware, but there are a lot of tears. <laughs> there are a lot of tears in hardware. Um, it was really, um, a, it was an emotional moment for me because I, I, I think really just because we never planned it that way. You know, you can't give yourself a nickname. You can't, you can't give yourself attributes that you want people to, I mean, you can, I mean, you can, you can do things that will allow people to reflect on you in a certain way, but the fact that that was given to a business that I felt had really grown up in this neighborhood was really important. So it was, it was all of him. Yeah. It's um, like you said, anyone can call themselves anything, but I think it's so much more meaningful when other people just start organically doing it because they feel like in this situation, your store really embodies that and is living those values. And that's just like such a, a testament to, you know, the, the good that you were doing and maybe even not realizing the level of the impact it made until that was brought to you. And so I, I totally understand the, the tears. Um, yeah. Imagine that had to be very touching. Um, I'm curious, like you said, you didn't know a lot about addiction. Um, and then you're like slowly learning. So as you're learning, you know, there, there can be some like really bumpy times, um, <laughs> through recovery. Um, did you ha have moments where you're like, is this the right thing? Did, did people around you think like, oh, you're crazy for hiring these people in recovery? And like, I'm, I'm kind of curious what those interactions were and how you either like defended what you were doing and, and what made you like stay on that path. Yeah, so I think if I could just break that into two um, answers. One of the things, and I'm not afraid to sound stupid because I think that's part of the learning process for all of us, right? I did not realize that you could be in recovery and then relapse. Like I think I've, thought people were cured, right? And that's very naive, and I, I understand now how, how silly that sounds, but I had a very favorite teammate who worked with us for 10 years who started using again, and I was 
heartbroken. I didn't expect it. I, I didn't want to believe it. I mean, it was very traumatizing for me. Up until that point, most of the people that I had worked with, to be honest, they were they had either been clean for a, a good amount of time that I really felt like they were cured, or they sort of just disappeared from my life. And so there wasn't this me constantly watching the the coming and going, and which I've I've been able to do since then. So that's I, one thing that I think you were asking, Shannon. And then, then um, the naysayers are infuriating in so many ways. And so this is what I say, and, and people who hear me on podcasts or whatever are going to get sick of this story, but the very first teammate who stole from us, and it was like $3,000, so it was significant because, you know, we're a small business and we were very small at the time, was a... Uh, middle-class kid from the Midwest. He had gone to college. He was articulate. He looked great on paper. Nobody would have said to me, how did you trust hiring him? But standing next to him would be a teammate in, in recovery. And all the time, someone would say, how can you trust that person? Well, this was the one who taught me my first lesson about employee theft. And this was the one that sort of made me realize that you could look and act like any anybody anything be as, as great on paper or whatever and still do something negative and that was probably year two or three of my business ownership that I had that lesson and so from that day forward every time there was a naysayer I told them that story you're not asking me about that kid you're not asking me about this experience you're not asking you know and that that really made a lasting impact on our hiring philosophy yeah, that um, relates to what you were saying earlier, you know, about not judging a book by its cover and judging someone by the worst and best thing that they've done. You know, it goes to show that there's risk in hiring anyone. You, Anybody. you never know. Um, I'm curious what have been the positive things that you've found by hiring um, people who are in recovery and like actively working on themselves to be better. Like I have some things in my mind of what I, I think you might say, but I'm just curious what you have seen. Well, I, a couple of the guys on my team and I joke about all of the, um, the recovery or uh, therapy that they've had. And so I feel like I have learned so much myself by osmosis through like oh, what did you talk about in this meeting today? Or what did you learn in that meeting? And, and things that I've been able to just, you know, intuitively learn from those experiences. And so that's, that's been one. I think just the mindset, I mean, you know this, the resiliency that's required, the stick to itness. I say this all the time. If my mother had to give up her coffee for two days, she would be a raving lunatic. But to ask someone to give up something that has become so vital to them living, um, is not something that most human beings can wrap their heads around. You know, they think it's so easy to quit or they think it's it's no big deal, but it's, it's I mean, I, yeah, you know, I mean, you know better than anybody. And so just the, the strength, I think, that I've learned from some of my teammates and the ability to admit when they're wrong or the, the more open, candid conversations. You know, Shane, who, who owns the restaurant now, um, when I interviewed the folks that I that I talk about in the book, in his interview, he said he knows now to check in more. Like at the time, I didn't know to call him and say, hey, what did we do wrong? Like, what can I do to help you? And he said, I didn't know to tell you that I needed help. And so both of us learned just from that, you know, that one little interaction years later 
that you, know, you have to check in more. You have to be willing to use the, the words that you have to say, what do you need or what can I do? Well, and I, I think too, um, kind of to your point, my husband, you know, he can never do anything once. Right. So like he just goes hard. And so he, he did a couch to 5k, but now he's a marathon runner. Like he just ran 19 <laughs> miles yesterday and it was cool. You know, it was like, I mean, that's just wild. Um, but I think like you said, like if someone said like, Oh, I'm going to cut out sugar or gluten and you have to do this for the rest of your life. It, I mean, it's, it's, it is a hard concept to think about. And I think, um, I know at least for my husband, when, you know, we we're kind of at the start of this process and it was like, you can never drink again, or you can never smoke pot again. And he was like, that will never be because he had used for 15 years. Yeah. And so that concept, and like you said, it's like a crush, like that is how he dealt a lot of people who, um, have substance use disorder, have like a co-occurring medical, you know, mental health issue. Yeah. And so he has a lot of anxiety. And so that's how he dealt with it. And so that was just such a big, uh, pill to swallow that you will never use that again, never, ever, ever. Yeah. Which is just such a, just a big thing. Um, but I also think, um, uh, you had mentioned this on another podcast and I thought it was so interesting is that the skill sets that people get from being out on the streets or maybe doing illegal activity. Um, would you mind kind of sharing a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, I, I would say we, we take, I'm a little lighthearted about it and it's not that I'm joking or making fun at all, but you know, I hired one of my favorite teammates had, had sold drugs and I was giving a presentation to a group of stay at home moms that were coming back into the workforce. And I really wanted to, to figure out how, Everybody has skills. You just need to figure out how to get them to talk about them in the way that works for what they're trying to do, right? So stay-at-home moms are used to dealing with difficult people. I don't have children, but babies are a pain in the butt, right? Like they, they're up at all hours. They're very demanding. They want what they want, et cetera, and so on. Um, mo moms work on the lack of sleep. There's just all sorts of things that, they're, that they get good at. And if I said that to you as as moms coming back into the workforce, the audience would be nodding their head. Yeah, you're right. I'm really good at that. I'm really good at that. But when I compared that to someone who had sold drugs, people just glossed over. They're like, no. And I was like, he's used to odd hours. He's used to difficult customers. He's used to people that are upset or in a, you know, not in a happy place. And it's a lot of similarities that for me as a, as a retail business owner, all made sense. I needed people who could work all hours of the day and didn't care that it wasn't nine to five. I needed people who could deal with customers who were really mad because their toilet was broken. <laughs> didn't matter. Those skill sets really fed into, um, well, really particularly in retail. <laughs> yeah. Well, and there's a, you know, some business sense there that you, you have to know how to, you know, make your, your money and work with inventory and yes. all of those other things, even if it's, you know, it's illegal in, in that yep. way, but those skills, I see what you're saying, like how they translate into other areas. Yep. Yeah. And in that, that particular, for that particular person, you know, he was on house arrest when I hired him. And I, I remember, you know, I have these sort of aha moments, like, how did I not know this before? But when you're on house arrest, the, the court doesn't pay your bills, right? You still have to pay your phone bill and your rent and your, and your food. Not that you shouldn't have to, but people just assume that even though no one will give you a job, somehow you're taking care of all your basic needs. And so I remember thinking, that just sucks. Like his life sucks. And then I gave him this job and he became this really active and productive member of my team. 
And two years later, the stupid court system finally caught up and said, oh, by the way, we're going to put you in prison for 11 years. And I was like, uh-uh, that doesn't, you can't, that doesn't make any sense. And fortunately, he, he, he didn't um, have to go to prison, at, but he should have. I mean, as according to the law, he should have. And none of that stuff, like his life was on hold and his family's lives were on hold. And my life as the manager was on hold because I didn't know if I was going to have to find somebody else to fill his spot. So it's a lot. I've learned so much. Yeah, it's um, so great that you are giving this opportunity to people like you mentioned, um, like the house arrest that reminds me. So Jay was on house arrest for about a year um, at one point in our relationship, and he was able to keep his job, um, which was good because you still have to pay all of your, like you mentioned, your bills, but then the court fees and things are exorbitant and, you know, they constantly find a reason to continue your case. And then there's all these fees and charges that just pop up, you know, whenever it seems like. And so you're just, you know, you're constantly trying to dig yourself out of a hole. And I remember that we were so grateful at the time that his um, employer was supportive of Jay and that they had had a good rapport and was understanding of, you know, the random times that he'd have to go check in in the middle of the day or all of these things that make it so hard to move forward um, in your recovery or, you know, in trying to um, repair your life and right the wrongs. Um, And so it just, I think it's really cool that, you know, you are a place that having that understanding of everything that goes in, you know, it has to be really helpful for your employees to be able to move forward. And in turn, I would imagine that they want to do like good work for you. Yeah, I think so many, so many of our team does want to do good work. And I think that's a big part of it. It's a safe, it's a safe place to be. I mean, think about, about during COVID, if you are in the midst of a pandemic and you have, um, you have a, a drug that you need to, to deal with anxiety and make yourself feel whole and being with people keeps you from doing that or at least helps you. And I, I mean, you couldn't, people needed a place to go. And I was so grateful that we were able to stay open as an essential business because my team had a place to go. And so I didn't have to worry about them being at home and going to that dark place, which then, you know, could have, caused them to do all sorts of things that would have set them back or, you know, been detrimental. Yeah. Well, and Shannon, what is that saying? Like the opposite of addiction is like connection. Connection. Yeah. Community connection. Yeah. 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 And so, and so to that, yeah, hundred percent to that point, Gina is like, you send all these addicts home to just sit in their house by themselves. I mean, if you're newly in recovery, I mean, there's a lot of things going on in your brain. Yes. Yes. Um, and I'm so glad you brought up that story about that um, gentleman who was a drug dealer and all the different um, skills that he had, because I think that we have a lot of people that listen, a lot of uh, spouses and family members, um, because there's a lot of self-esteem issues that also come when there, a lot of times people do a lot of really bad things when they're in active use. So their self-esteem is so low. And so one of the things that we always heard when we were in our meetings is like, get your person to get a job, because there's just such a... Um, feeling of self-worth that you get from when you can like clock in, clock out, you can contribute to the family financially or whatever, pay your bills. You're not, you know, uh, going delinquent or anything on that. And so, um, I'm glad you brought that up for people to just kind of see a different 
mindset of like, you don't need to go to college and, you know, do all these things. Like you have a lot of skills just doing normal everyday day-to-day things. Yes. Um, so as a family member who can help someone who maybe like beef up their resume, like, okay, well, what did you do that you think could translate to, you know, working well with yeah. others, managing money? Well, that type of stuff. For and sure. And you just have to think about, you know, how you're positioning it or wording it to make, you can get creative with those things. I didn't, I didn't, well, one, I didn't understand the idea of a recovery job. And I think that goes to exactly what you're saying, Katie, and like beefing up um, someone's self-esteem. I think something like 40% of people in the United States have some sort of connection with addiction or substance use disorder. And they were not all, lots of them were executives. Lots of them were attorneys. Lots of them had all sorts of advanced degrees. Like this is a disease that touches everybody. And when you think that you are on the top of the world in your profession, and then you get to that rock bottom or you get to whatever place requires you to start over again, you lose all sense of purpose. And so even, even if it's just retail, and I'm, I'm using air quotes for the listeners because I don't think of it as just retail, it gives you a place to go where you can start building those, those just basic skills again that you might, might have forgotten or yeah, just need yeah. reinforced. Well, and Gina, you're not in recovery yourself. So, um, and like you said, you're, you've not uh, dealt with like a loved one who's kind of gone through this. And so- when someone comes to work drunk or high or have had a slip up, um, how, 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 what are your feelings around that as a business owner? So we, there's a couple things. Well, we have a pretty active um, temporary leave policy, particularly with folks who need to go back into you know, some sort of um, rehabilitation center or where they need to go away for several several weeks or months at a time and so one of the things that we've learned over the years is just to be very very um uh thoughtful in the fact that uh, saving someone's job so you know if someone's going to use their job as the excuse and we can say no we're saving your job they no longer have that to worry about that that stigma is gone like we want you to go get well we're going to save your job for you and then you're going to come back um, and, you know, in a perfect world, that always happens exactly like it's supposed to, but people relapse all the time. Um, people need lots of chances. The recovery rate is so hard to reach for so many people. Um, se- several of the managers and leaders on my team are also in recovery. So I think holistically as an organization, a lot of us understand how hard it is um, and give multiple chances, even though I know some of the managers get very frustrated. Um, but if someone shows up, to work and they're obviously under the influence and they're asked to go home. You're not fired that day. You're, you know, we understand what you're going through right now. You've got to go home. Um, and obviously after that happening so many times, it's a, okay, do you need a leave of absence? Because otherwise you're going to lose your job and we don't want that to happen. And so um, I would say some of the, some of my leaders have an easier time having that conversation than others. It's not a perfect uh, situation, but we try to make it as easy as possible. And I think part of that is just being open. You know, my friend Andy owns a series of restaurants in Washington, D.C., and he's Iranian, and he talks a lot about issues with racism. And and he said, until we are willing to talk about it and be vulnerable talking about it, nothing will ever get better. And I think what I've learned the most about addiction over the years is that it's, it's well, you know, you were a secret for so long, right? <laughs> like, you're in the closet yeah. about it. And it's, so that's why I want everyone to feel comfortable saying, even in their stinking interview, you know, I used crystal meth. Okay, like, let's figure out how to celebrate the fact that you're not right now. And, you know, my world always, I feel like when I talk about it, it's like 
kumbaya, and it's not, but we have to talk about those crappy things or those hard things um, if we want people to get better and we want society to help them get better. Yeah. Do so you, the, um, oh, go ahead, Shannon. <laughs> I was just curious, like, do you ever um, have any of your stores, do they host meetings in the store after it's closed? Is that a thing? No, but we should. No. We, I don't know why we have it to be, we have, I have, I, I remember one employee specifically that said, you know, we could host a meeting in the plumbing aisle because I think that day, like everyone on staff was in recovery. Um, so, you know, I guess unofficial meetings have happened, but not official. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's really funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was just curious, uh, what led to the book? Like, how did you get to this point of, I'm going to write a book? I really, I like that question because it wasn't my idea. People had asked me for years to write a book about opening a hardware chain. And I just didn't think that was very interesting, to be honest. I'm like, I build a business. Um, and then Mark said my teammate mark said that this the community was called recovery hardware so i thought that was interesting and then i had a um i had a great assistant who passed away he had been an iv drug user for 12 years and i was in the car one day with him and i i, I teased him that he cornered me while we were in a moving vehicle and he said if you don't talk about us who will and at that point i felt like more businesses should be doing what we're doing. I mean, I don't think we're perfect. I don't think we get it right 50% of the time, but John was basically like, it's okay if you talk about us. And so then I started, it was probably about a year later that I started, I, we knew John was gonna die. And so I wanted to interview him before um, he passed away. So I did, and that just kicked off me starting the whole process. So it's really dedicated to him and the fact that he gave me the kick in the butt I needed. Hmm. Man. I was holding up my arms because I was like got chills when you said that like if you don't talk about us who will because who will you know yeah. that's so true and I think it resonates with us um and kind of a reminder of you know why we want to do what we're doing um like you said we have to talk about these things and share it to make people aware and hopefully you know make change for the better so yeah. what what is your your goal with the book then you so to tell the story to help other businesses follow in this model i don't know you know it's a little bit of everything if you if you put sort of the recovery piece to the side i've i've told small business owners you know everyone's talking about how you can't find employees right now and we honestly have not had that problem but i know that it is a problem in in some industries and so i've said just start to think outside the box look in your community and find the disenfranchised, find the groups in your town who, who are ready to work and are being overlooked. And it may be moms coming back out of the workforce. It may be veterans. It may be folks from the recovery clinic. No group is ever imperfect or perfect. Um, and so I want people to hear that they need to be hiring and thinking about business differently, especially because the news is all, nobody wants to work and nobody can find employees. I think that's baloney. I think that business owners constantly look in the same places for the same kinds of people. And so that's probably the underlying message. And then really to, to put a face, not just to the stories in my book to, but you know, to, if I had, if I had had the opportunity to write about all of you there, you would have had a place in there because what you're doing is, I have to imagine that you've heard from so many people, so many spouses, like 
thank God you started this and you've touched my life in a way that's making it easier for me. And so I want people to also read it and, and get that sense. Yeah. Well, there are any other, um, I know you've kind of alluded to a, a few stories or any other like good teasers about the book that you want to get out there or share? I, you know, I did something recently and the guy was like, don't, no spoilers. Don't give any spoiler alerts. Cause you know, I'm usually, oh, you can tell I talk a lot. And so I'm just like telling the whole story. Um, no, well, you know, we, we decided to sell the business to our employees after the book was completely drafted. It wasn't done, but I wasn't exactly sure what the last chapter was going to be. And honestly, I originally thought I would tell John's story as the last chapter, but I didn't want to end on what would seem like a heartbreaking note, even though he's actually still at the end. But anyway, um, in the process of writing the book over two and a half years, my husband and I decided that we wanted to form an ESOP and sell it to our team. And so it sort of became, to me, this beautiful way to wrap up building a culture and including our team and so many great things. And then, oh, by the way, I'm going to I'm going to leave the hardware business, but I'm going to leave it to you. And so uh, that's not a teaser, but I think that's really a nice subtopic in the book that I hope I get a chance to talk more about. Um, ESOPs are still sort of unicorns in the business world. There's about 6,000 nationally, so not very many. Um, and I think that's, a, that's just a nice, like, oh, wow, they did what? Yeah. Yeah, because um, you, can you, yeah. sorry, can you just remind us like what an ESOP is? Yeah, or sure. Plus, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it's, it's confusing still for me. It's been a year and a half. Um, it's an employee stock ownership program. It acts like a, a qualified retirement plan. So when my team and we just got our first statements, when they get a statement, it looks a lot like getting a 401k statement. And so every year, so we sold a portion of the business to the employees. It stays in a trust. The employees don't actually pay any money. The business buys the business buys the business on their behalf, which sounds a little confusing, but we don't have to get into all that now. And then every year there's a valuation and the team... Um, who are the, the employees who have become owners and you become an owner after a year of service um, and a thousand hours, they get a statement that tells them how much they've earned as an owner of the business. So it's really, it's, it's a little bit complicated to explain. And once you get it, they get it. Um, once they leave the business, we have to pay them out or they have to roll it into a qualified retirement plan. They can't stay an owner of the company. So the day that we announced it was, um, it was like August 12th or something of 2021, 165 of our teammates automatically became co-owners in the business, which is really wow. cool. Yeah. yeah. That's neat. Well, and this yeah. can be very successful for people. So, I mean, I think um, my husband's company uh, just turned an ESOP as well. Yeah. And so it's so interesting, like, uh, not that he wasn't doing a good job before, but there's a little bit like you've got skin in the game now yeah. of like, you know, those broken light bulbs you know, that's kind of coming out of your pocket in a roundabout yeah. way, or, you know, that missing inventory or whatever it may be. I mean, it, it's a really neat concept, honestly. And like you said, it they is. are a unicorn. You don't hear about them very often. No. Well, I mean, the co-op, we have a hard enough time explaining to people that Ace Hardware is a cooperative because people don't, most people don't understand what a co-op is and they think we're a franchise. And so I feel like we're just getting to the point where people understand that. And now we've added the complication of, oh, by the way, we're owned by our employees. <laughs> what are you? But anyway, hopefully they're all good retention tools. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Well, so uh, as we wrap up, can you share with us how how people can find your book so that they can read it and hear read these stories that you've talked yeah, about? Yeah, sure. So um, there's a couple different ways. Bookshop.org is the national sort of aggregated website for independent booksellers. 
So if you go to bookshop.bookshop.org, you can order it and your local bookstore gets credit for the sale. Or you can walk into your local bookstore and ask them to order it and they should all have the ability to order it. It's really hard to get a book actually sold in a bookstore and I, I will work on that. That's part of the next phase in my marketing. Um, Barnes and Noble also has it and um, you can find me at Recovery Hardware on Instagram or Gina Schaefer on LinkedIn and the link to buy is also in my bio in both of those places. So yeah, we will, we'll link all of that in the notes and of course share on social media as well. Thank you. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, Gina, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to uh, share with us about your your stores and uh, your recovery hardware book that's come out. Um, and this is uh, this episode is going to come out at the end of September, which is uh, wrapping up our uh, National Recovery Month. So we're so excited you're going to be that podcast for us. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening and keep coming back. Thanks for spending time with us. We hope this story has helped you better navigate yours. Don't forget to subscribe so we can meet you here next time. If you enjoyed this episode, spread the love by rating or reviewing. Need more support? Join our online community by visiting us at boyproblemspod.com. Whatever you do, keep coming back. We're not licensed professionals. We're here to share our lived experience. So take what resonates and leave what doesn't.